So it's with great humility and privilege that we welcome to our series today's special guest, Mr. David Gonski, AC. David, you've had an extraordinary career across so many different sectors, law, corporate advisory, finance, banking, education, and philanthropy, to name a few. We'll delve into those, but before we do, I thought it'd be interesting to get a bit of an idea as to your family history, if you could shed some light on that and, and perhaps your background. Well, my family history is that uh, I was born in, in South Africa. After I was uh, about seven years old, my dear mum encouraged my father to leave South Africa. She was very, very worried about the situation there. Um, there had been just the Sharpeville massacres, but more particularly the Cape Town University had determined, and it's a very good university, not to have black people at the university. This really offended my mother. And um, so mum and dad and four kids, I was the eldest, came to Australia. And um, that was our start here. Australia has been incredibly kind to us. Uh, we came with comparatively little, uh, given that one wasn't allowed to take uh, wealth out of South Africa. There were limits on that. But my father had an education, he was a brain surgeon, and it took a while, but he got going, and we had a very good life. So you arrive in Australia, I believe, in 1962? 61. 61. First impressions? Our first impressions were, it wasn't that dissimilar to South Africa. Obviously, there were not a lot of black people here, and of course, in those days, um, there was not an Asian influence, which, by the way, I think is a good thing that we've had that now. Um, but then it was, it was much more white and, and so on. But the beaches were very similar to Cape Town. The feeling was there. We came, as I said earlier, as a block of six people. Um, so we had each other. We were living in a very small flat. The wonderful thing, and I could feel it even as a seven-year-old, is that my parents felt there was a feeling of hope here. They felt very much that if they just kept at it, things would go well for them here. Mm. And I've seen letters now that my father sent at the time, and that's what he was saying. That it was tough because they didn't have friends, he didn't have a business, you know, he didn't have a practice, um, but at the same time he knew it was going to be all right. So you arrive in Australia and you're living in Vaucluse, no, no, we arrived in Australia and we lived in a small flat in Double Bay. Double Bay. On the main road. In fact, I drive by it every day and on the way home I feel I can almost drive into it because I know exactly where it was and it's right there as you turn the, turn the bend. And education-wise, Sydney Grammar School... Well, no, you... to begin with I went to a public school. Public school. And uh, I should add, the reason I'm keen to say that is that it was what I'd call a comprehensive public school. It was in Double Bay, and then I moved, later on we moved to Vaucluse, and I went to Vaucluse Public. Um, the interesting thing about that was it was also a comprehensive school. There were quite wealthy kids there, but also some very poor kids. And it's quite interesting, there were some very clever kids there, and some not so clever. And I absolutely distinctly remember the more scholastic, namely me, couldn't hit a ball, couldn't uh, play sport, those that were slightly less scholastic used to take us under their wing and teach us a few tricks in the playground. It was a good thing. It was a very good thing. And obviously very early 
in your life, but did you see a particular, did you have a particular interest in one field over another at school? I began very early in, in my school life enjoying speaking. And I wasn't sure that was a good thing. I was quite, um, not traumatised, that's putting it too hard, but I was, I was concerned that I would catch a ball with my eye rather than watch with your eye and catch it with your hand. Um, and this was not the way to, you know, uh, get people happy with you. I'm the guy who, when they chose people for teams, was the one left over at the end. In fact, I became the scorer very often. Um, but what I didn't realise was that speaking might be more valuable to me for the rest of my career. And as time went on, I became a debater um, and made speeches, and it became what I, what I liked doing. Speaking of debating, as I understand it, you became friendly with a very young Malcolm Turnbull who was a year below you and a very keen debater. Talk to me about your friendship with him in those early years. Well, the interesting thing is I think it's true to say Malcolm went to Vaucluse Public um, but, and also, like myself, uh, moved over to a private school later in, in one's scholastic career. I met Malcolm when I was in uh, what is now called Year 8 and he was in Year 7 at Sydney Grammar. Um, he came into our team. Um, he was an extraordinary good debater. He was our third speaker and um, regularly we won the debate because of our third speaker. Um, he was full of ideas. I enjoyed talking to him. He lived near us and often used to visit our family home. He was an only child. I was one of four as I mentioned earlier and uh, um, we had a very good relationship and uh, enjoyed very much when he was in the team. And following graduation you then enrolled at the University of New South Wales over the University of Sydney. As I understand it you were in one of their first intakes of the combined law commerce degrees. Tell me about where you saw your career heading at that stage. Why law and commerce? I thought you were going to ask me why the University of New South Wales, That's which I, I'm happy to mention, but why law and commerce? My, my dad, as mentioned earlier, the brain surgeon, he felt I should be a neurologist. He was alive to the fact that I may not be fantastic with my hands, but he felt neurology was the right thing for me. And it took me till I was 17 to tell him I was not going to be a doctor. And I used to travel with him to the hospital every Sunday do my homework in his car for the two or three hours he was doing whatever he did. He thought that was because I loved medicine, but of course it was because I loved going with him. Um, so he was a bit surprised, but he understood. I wanted to use my debating, this sort of thinking, to perhaps be a barrister. That was my dream, a dream I never fulfilled. And so I decided I'd do law. At Sydney Grammar School, it was the preparatory school for Sydney University. And I still remember when I got my prize in, uh, in sixth form, or year 12 as it's now called, and the man giving it to me said to me, this is the university you go to, Sydney University, and after that you go to a particular law firm. <laughs> I did neither. And the reason that I went to the University of New South Wales is they had something new, a new law school. It had been set up on the Socratic method so that you didn't go to big lectures, you talked things through, 
And even my dad's friends who were in the law, who went to Sydney Uni, many of them lectured at Sydney Uni, kept saying to me, have a look at this. This is different. It was the second law school in, in Sydney. And uh, I followed it and loved every minute of it. What were some of those formative experiences that you had at the University of New South Wales? Well, the formative experiences were basically sitting in a U-shape, arguing over particularly esoteric matters of criminal law or whatever. And the lecturers were of an enormously high standard because they took only good people and basically people who really loved the law had to go there because other universities were better established. Uh, and they really put a lot of effort into us. I should add the buildings, uh, which I hope I've helped change over the year, were terrible. They were old, demountable buildings. Many a time we had our lectures under a particular tree. Uh, that was usually when it wasn't raining. Uh, it was very, very hot in summer in these demountables and very cold in winter. But the spirit of that law school was outstanding and it's to great credit to many that a lot of that spirit still remains at that law school. Post-university you then uh, worked at Freehill Hollingdale and Page as a summer clerk. Take me through your first experiences working within the law rather than studying law. I realised very quickly that what I really loved was dealing with people. And it's quite an interesting thing. It is sort of a well-known and probably a historical fact that if you're a clerk, you do lots of thinking and lots of writing, but they don't usually let you with clients. I had a different experience. My mentor, the late Kim Santo, um, was just so generous. And I started to work with him even before I left university. Um, he was very keen for me to go and talk to clients. Some clients knew my parents, some didn't. And I played on it, I loved it. And I knew exactly when I finished my commerce law degree, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to deal with people, I wanted to build a practice, etc, etc. Interestingly, my great wish going into law was to be a barrister, and I knew that was not going to happen. You're working at Freehill, Hollingdale and Page. As I understand it, you're working within the M&A division of the business over time. Tell me about that. Well, I should firstly say, my, when I was a, a, what they call a Christmas clerk, my first year was in litigation. But I never went anywhere near, which is probably fortunate for some litigation ever again. I, my second year of uh, Christmas clerkship, end of my year four in my commerce law degree was spent in M&A and I stayed there until I left the law. I loved the joust of the merger and acquisition. It was developing, new laws were coming in on corporations. The concept of an FIRB, Foreign Investment Review Board, was just starting. Uh, the concepts of the ACCC, the Trade Practices Law, was starting. Um, we were starting to build a very, very sophisticated business community here. Um, they opened up obviously uh, exchange control, got rid of that and uh, allowed people to move monies through and uh, it allowed for international business to come in and indeed to go out and as an M&A lawyer you did both. 
By this stage, you would have been in your early to mid-twenties, and as I understand it, you also had your first exposure to Westfield, Consolidated Press, uh, and some of these other titans of industry, in particular Kerry Packer and, and Frank Lowy. Tell us about some of those early experiences you had in advising them and, and, and providing legal commentary for some of their cases, if you could. I should start by saying, uh, for me to say that I advised Kerry Packer when I was a lawyer is an overstatement. I think I was lawyer number 349 um, in a big transaction in the very early 80s, so I would have been 28 or something like that, 27. Um, I don't think he would have known who I was. We came to be uh, closer, or you know, my advice was closer to him in my next incantation after I, uh, I left the, the law. Frank Lowy I met in 1980, so I would have been 27. One of the great things about Frank Lowy is he doesn't care how old you are. As far as he's concerned, he's interested in your mind. He loves surrounding himself with clever people. And I think, and you, sh you can ask him, at his age now of over 90, he relishes in talking to younger people. Great skill of his. Um, and uh, so from 1980 onwards, I was his lawyer. And when I left the law, I joined his board. And we sort of uh, kept up from then on. And you did make partner of the firm at age 25, the youngest ever partner, as I understand it, in the firm's history. How did you go about that trajectory of being at the firm at such a young age and then making partner only a few short years later? Yeah, I think that the reason I became a partner so young was really luck, if you believe being a partner is a good thing. And, and at the time, it was my ambition. The reason it took me very little time was that what was happening was this new world of M&A was taking over. And I was getting offers pretty well every you know, week from merchant banks because they were going into the area that we were in. And indeed, you know, it's quite an interesting question. It's probably a PhD in it. Why the law firms and the accounting firms let them come into that, but they did. Um, and the law firm was smart enough, Friels, to know that they could lose me. And uh, I, they came to me relatively early and said to me, would you be a partner here? Because they realised that would keep one for longer. And I loved the firm. They were nurturing. Their professionalism was outstanding. And of course, I loved Kim Santa. So the answer was yes. The only problem was you weren't allowed to be a partner until you had had one year of practice after your articles of clerkship. So that was why they had to wait until the two years. I want to ask you about Wentworth Associates, which, as I understand it, was founded in 1986. I've read commentary that said there was a desire at your end to pursue work on the financial side of transactions rather than on the legal side. Was that one of the key inputs in moving away from the law and launching your own firm? You're close. I, I mean, first, let me go back a step and say, as I said earlier, I loved the law firm. I loved the fraternity and I loved returning from the fray like a, a warrior out there and re, you know, refreshing yourself by telling your war stories to your partners and feeling, frankly, their support, which I felt very strongly. But what I realised is that we were becoming more transactionally based. I mean, I had a, a series of clients, but my clients were slowly becoming merchant banks. 
So I was doing takeovers all the time and I didn't get very close or as close as I thought I could to many people. Frank Lowy was a slight exception. He was strong on, on relationships and he sort of, we'd worked together and he kept ringing me and I loved that. Um, but it wasn't the, the way the world was going. And I thought to myself, I better get out of this and become closer to particular firms and people because I like people, I like to see what they do, I want to be in the planning stage of doing something rather than just the transactional stage. And um, that's why I set up Wentworth. The concept was to do what we were doing, but to be there on retainer all the time. And just with regard to the mandate of the firm, was there any particular types of work that you would take on and work types of work that you would refer to others that had a more specialised role? No, it's a good question. We became the gatekeepers. And if you say to me, did you think that would happen? Not really. It developed, but it developed quickly. Mm. We had a very close relationship with quite um, successful and growing companies and people. And basically, they knew that we would give them dispassionate advice and basically were not trying just to make a success fee or indeed to just do a transaction. So the consequence is they'd tell us we want to do this and we'd say, well, you know, the best for this is X uh, and the worst for this is somebody else. And uh, as a consequence, we be began to build very large practice and very close to many of the leading merchant bankers in town, accounting firms and lawyers, because they were obviously hopeful that our gate would lead to them. But at the same time, they had to give amazing service. Otherwise, we'd tell our client not to use them. And speaking of some of the engagements that you worked on during this period, we mentioned Kerry Packer earlier, as I understand it, you did quite a lot of work with Consolidated Press. You also worked with Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Stokes, to name a few. Reflecting on some of those deals and transactions that you worked on, is there something that you'd learnt from each of them? I think you learnt something from every day, by the way. Um, I learnt, firstly, that these were pretty special men, um, there were not as many women around in those days, which is something else I learned. That was not a good thing. Uh, but the men were outstanding. I mean, I will never forget, as long as I live, um, the intelligence of some of these people. Their ability to know that if they go to B, uh, basically from A, that's the right thing. I also realised that I probably didn't have that skill. My skill was perhaps to help them how to get from A to B. And uh, as soon as you realise your strength, it makes it a lot easier. You had a role in the infamous Tourang Consortium in 1991, along with many other luminaries at the time. When you reflect on that period today, what were some of those experiences that really stand out? I know Turnbull obviously gave the passionate defence of Goanna, as it was called then. Conrad Black was supposedly involved. Take us through being involved in not so much the inquiry, but, but the consortium itself and the bid? Yes, well, firstly, my involvement, I mean, was, was not enormous in that consortium. There were others who worked for months. Uh, a friend of mine, by the way, who was a partner of Freehills at the time, uh, he was sitting there in his raincoat at about four o'clock one morning, and people thought he died. 
He's still alive, I'm pleased to tell He was just so exhausted from the work he had done. For me, I acted for a firm called Hellman and Friedman. Such a clever group of people. Unbelievably brilliant, in my opinion. They'd come out here, they wanted to do private equity. Fairfax was their first. They did many others afterwards, and many of them we were involved in through our Wentworth Associates. Um, I liked them. They were clever people. They had high morality. Uh, I, I just cannot think of a negative on that firm. Um, the only thing was probably that some of them have retired, you know, <laughs> which is, is what happens now. But uh, I'd have to say that that's how I got in. I advised them uh, very squarely on that. And uh, they were obviously one of the funders for it. Uh, and that's, that's how I got into it. Before we move on, Wentworth Associates was acquired by Investec Bank in 2001. Take me through that deal. Were you excited? What was the, the feeling that you had post-sale? I know there was still the involvement with Investec Bank and you later became chairman, but uh, what, what did you see as the next chapter post the establishment and then the disposal, so to speak, of Wentworth Associates? No, it's a good question. And I'm not, offered, not, not often asked that question. I mean, the first thing I would say is when we started Wentworth Associates, my idea was that it probably wouldn't outlast us. In other words, it would be a wonderful vehicle for us to do good things. And basically, when we retired, we would close the door and hopefully people would remember us fondly. I was 48 uh, in just, just before 2001 when this happened. And I felt, you know, I was getting quite senior. When I look back now, 20 years later, I wasn't senior at all, but I thought in terms of age, I was getting senior. And there was a time maybe not to be just doing advisory. And there were four of us with about five or six people who worked with us on, on top of that. And it was clear that some of the younger ones wanted it to live on. And I remember talking with Jeff Levy, who was one of the people there, and he was pushing that it could live on. And this was a new thing for me. And his suggestion was that we sold it to something bigger, merged it and made something that might last longer. And so when the offer came from Investec Bank, we got an offer from somebody else as well, and we chose Investec Bank. Uh, it was quite exciting. Our little baby was going to live on for some years. I want to ask you about some of the directorships that you held during the sort of mid-90s and, and early part of 2000s, the early part of the 2000s, in particular John Fairfax Holdings, where I understand you're on the board during the period 1993 to 2005. How did you see the evolution of the publishing industry during that time as a board member? I think as a board member, and by the way, this was the view of most board members, we could see that the, in inverted commas, rivers of gold, which was the classified advertising, was not going to last. We knew that we had to move into the new world. This new thing called an internet had started. There were lots of companies starting up and nibbling. And they weren't doing that well, but you could see that over time they would take this. Um, I must say, I, I don't know that we thought newspapers would disappear. But now when you look at their new models for how they're delivered, that makes sense. The question, of course, was, did we take enough steps at that stage? And I think the answer is, many say you should have bought all sorts of companies, but they were extremely expensive. 
And if you want to start to philosophize on listed public companies and short and long term, this is probably quite a good example that as a listed company, could we really buy companies which were not trading on 23 times earnings, they were trading on 2,300 times earnings, if there was earnings at all. Could you do that and put many, many millions, if not billions, into it and be accepted in the marketplace? Our choice might be said to have been a little conservative, that we didn't do that. Um, and that may be the reason that some of them got going and we see them today. Having said that, I would definitely be of the view that we, the board was aware that there was a movement and indeed many things were started, domain being one of them. You were also on the board of ANZ Bank and later became chairman standing down in 2020. How have you seen the financial sector in Australia evolve over the past, say, 15 or so years, in particular reflecting on the impacts of the Royal Commission? I think that Australia, I mean, I go back even right to the day I started at Freehills so many years ago, has always had a small but very sophisticated financial services area. That sophistication grew probably during the time that I've been allowed to practice, not necessarily from me, but from lots and lots of people who've contributed. When I came to the bank, and by the way, a bank and the banking system is the most fascinating thing you can be involved in. It is the heart of what goes on in a financial community. You watch everything in some way going through a bank. Um, I think banks have been extraordinarily good in many ways. Um, the Royal Commission did show up some practices, um, but I felt myself that there are many things that should not have been done, but there are many things that were done and were good. Um, so basically, and when I say were good, uh, obviously the Commissioner was not going to dwell on that, he dwelt on the bad things. Sadly, there were bad things, and it would be wrong to say that they didn't exist. I felt that the ANZ tried very hard during that period. Our motto became, you know, we do make mistakes, but the thing that's terrible is not making a mistake. It is not learning from it and then never making it again. That's what you've got to seek to achieve. And I think we were well-led. Hopefully others feel that the chairman had some part in that. It's not for me to judge. Um, and, uh, you know, we tried very hard to be human because essentially I found the ANZ Bank a very human place. Another industry I wanted to touch upon was uh, the retailing industry where you're in a, uh, a board member of Westfield Group from 1985 to 2011. How did Westfield evolve in, in, in an industry that's evolved over the years so much? How did it keep up to date with that change? I think that Westfield was amazing in the way they kept uh, reimagining themselves. So right at the beginning, well before my time, uh, Frank Lowy and his partner had started these small shopping centres and then they went to America and saw bigger shopping centres. And then, amazing when you think about it, having built a few big ones in Australia, he decides to go off to America to show the Americans how to do what he, they've just taught him. And he did it beautifully, always with an eye to detail, 
always with a focus, not playing on the sides, always looking for the main game. And I think the advantage as well of having a group of people, which was mainly his family, that he could send off and trust. I mean, his son David went, um, I think it was to Connecticut, um, for many years before they built that shopping centre or the shopping centre associated with it, um, looking careful, careful to build, and obviously with the trust of the chairman or the CEO at the time, Frank Lowy. So I think that uh, Westfield is a very good case in point that a, a business doesn't become mature, it matures. It keeps changing. And uh, Frank was always changing and always, I've got to say, a step ahead. Coming back to what I said earlier, there are some people who know they've got to move from A to B. There are others like me who can help them to get there. There's so many other roles that I could ask you about. Before we move on, I do want to ask you about the Future Fund, which is an iconic institution now in Australia and setting up Australia for the long-term future. How important do you see that here in Australia for, for setting up future generations? Oh, I think the, the concept of having a Future Fund is the most, one of the most brilliant ideas mm. I've seen in the economic world and I pay enormous respect to the now chairman and then treasurer who started at Peter Costello. Um, I also would say that they established this future fund and they would not take in anybody who wasn't really intelligent into building it. If you deal with them even today, the CEO is outstanding and it permeates right through. They're mature, they're clever. They don't just rush for the next dollar, they try and make sure that it's safe and within the parameters do very well. The concept of putting away some money for a rainy day appeals to me enormously. The concept that Peter Costello had was there was an unfunded superannuation liability for Commonwealth uh, um, superannuants or Commonwealth uh, uh, public servants you might call them. Um, and he built this thing based on that. I hope it will last forever, that it will always be available to Australians so that we can use it in down times. And I think it's uh, become very big and it's a leader in its industry. And I think those who've been involved in it can be very proud. I have to ask you about the Gonski school, refer school reforms initially under the Gillard government and then a second version under the Turnbull government. For those that haven't read the full reports, can you give us an idea into the genesis of your involvement and what the intended outcomes were? When Julia Gillard, as uh, Education Minister, approached me to do this review, firstly, I mean, I wasn't, uh, what's the word, uh, that uh, full of myself that I thought I was an expert on education. I was a Chancellor of a university and I'd been the chairman of an independent boys' school. And I'd been to school, like most people. That was the sum total of my involvement in education. But she didn't want an education uh, guru. She wanted a review done on funding. And as soon as she explained that to me, I realised, well, that's what I do for a living. You know, I am a merchant banker, I am a lawyer involved in M&A and so on. I understand money and money things. So we set off and wrote that report and I'm still proud of it. 
we identified that funding should be given on a needs-based basis. What we were pushing there was to take the words of Julia Gillard that demography should not, destiny, should not instigate destiny. It should not be correlated. People should be able to move in our, in our community, even though they may be poor to start with, to great education and beyond. And that was the plan. The second report was much more based on education, but I agreed to chair it in return for the implementation of my first report. And our first report was only implemented really uh, in 2016, the funding, um, and is still being worked on. And then of course the second one uh, to date hasn't been fully implemented. Moving into the current environment, I want to go through a couple of your roles, in particular you're the non-executive chairman of Baron Joey Capital. When you look at that business, it's clearly a challenger business, it's grown over the course of 18, 24 months, correct me if I'm wrong, fantastic team, Matthew Grounds and, and so many others that are involved in it. How have you seen the growth of that business in, a, in an industry that's dominated by players that have been around for 50, 100, 150 plus years? I have never denigrated the power of clever, hard-working, decent people. And um, that's why I was enticed to come to Baron Joey. It is the cream, in my opinion, of merchant banking. But at the same time, the people that I deal with there, some of whom you've just mentioned, have a, an ethics and a... Uh, a way of doing things that is exactly where I feel people should. And they've tried to build a business where people are excited about doing what they're doing, where they feel loved and where the business can proceed in a way that, you know, is harmony both with customers but also with those involved in the business. Um, I'm not surprised they're doing well. Um, when you take very clever people, you usually do well. And if they do it in a gracious and proper way, you should be very successful. You're also the chairman of Sydney Airport, which was in the news earlier this year with regard to its privatisation. Take us inside that particular deal, and is that a theme that you expect to continue over the next two to three years, say, this large-scale privatisation, the likes of which we haven't seen for a long, long time, if ever? The privatisation of Sydney Airport, which was not sought by us as a board of Sydney Airport, was uh, in total a cost of $23 billion, so it was a big, a big buy. It is, as you rightly and perceptively note, um, I think the start of many of these things. Uh, what has happened basically with that is that the smaller shareholders can't buy shares in us, we're not listed. Uh, Sydney Airport's not listed any longer. But on the other hand, um, through the big superannuation funds and so on, many Australians own part of the business. Mm. Um, round the table, you've got pretty well, the, the board table, you've got pretty well almost 100% of the shareholders represented, not quite. Um, whereas we wouldn't have had many shareholders represented at all in the... Uh, public days. I think there's argument both ways. There's strong argument for an asset such as Sydney Airport to be in the hands of private owners because their concept of long term is longer, their availability to additional capital is easier and the 
requirements on management to quickly make profits is less, which could mean a much longer and better uh, established business. But on the other hand, I think it's good that people can invest in things. And um, so I hope that over time we get the regeneration, which I think we will, of other assets becoming listed. And I think that when one is doing regulation, one has to be very aware that putting more and more regulation on listed companies may work the other way of pushing people into unlisted companies, which of course takes away the public's right and, and potential to invest in it. You're the former chairman of ASX Limited and I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and you sort of answered it there. So is that a, a big risk? Because when you do go around and talk to people, people are now saying, well, why would you list on the public markets? There's no patient capital, there's so much regulation, there's AGMs, you know, and quarterly updates, market updates up to your neck. Is there a disincentive now to become a public company and remain private, do you think? I think for some companies, there is a disincentive. Um, but having said that, don't write off the stock exchange or the securities exchange just yet. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, people will always want to list. I think a lot of people feel it's a way of coming uh, into sort of the establishment of business and so on. And by, as an old M&A lawyer and merchant banker, of course I love the concept of it being private, public and coming back, it's, it's, it's fine. But um, I do think, as I said earlier, the regulators and others have to think this through. You can't have one set of rules for listed companies that are so tough that stop people actually offering these shares and then have another set for those who might be able to put together more money and they then escape that. That's, I think in the long term, that's not a good thing. You're the Chancellor of the University of New South Wales. When you look at the university sector in this post-COVID world, how different is it and how different do you expect that to be in the long term? I, I think that, look, firstly, COVID's been a, a difficulty, obviously. It's been a difficulty for lots and lots mm. of businesses and pursuits. It was a very tough period for universities, very tough. And for our international students, extremely tough. Um, but it's coming back. And I think the excellence of our universities in Australia, the geographic uh, location, and frankly, the weather, although with El Nino there may be slight uh, uh, weight for that, but our weather's pretty good, our beaches are wonderful, etc. I'm very confident in the university sector in Australia. Is it different today than before COVID? It's different because the memory of COVID is very etched in our minds. I don't know about others, but the concept of a pandemic didn't figure big in my thinking. We always had pandemic plans, but you always thought it won't happen, but it did. And it did affect the resources of universities, and it did affect the way people did thing, business, and indeed some people lost their jobs as a result of it. But having said that, we're wiser, and we will, at least this generation of chancellors and vice-chancellors will bear it in mind. But the universities are strong. Um, research in Australia is amazing. And I think the opportunities for educating not just Australians but the world is outstanding. You mentioned pandemic plans there. When you look at 
some of these events that have occurred recently, in particular the pandemic, which they say is a once in a hundred year or, or potentially longer event. When you look at some of your other roles, do these events that everybody expected that would never sort of happen, but you'd still sort of have a plan in the bottom drawer, are you looking at those plans more closely now? I think the first thing I'd say is I did look at some plans. Uh, I will not say that it was for a university. In fact, it wasn't for anything I'm on the board of now, mm. just recently. And they were very well written, but not very practical. So I think drawing up plans now would probably be a lot better than previously. I think what our problem is, in my opinion, is we don't look long enough term. When I was uh, on a number of companies in Singapore, I was amazed how long-term in their thinking they are. And it doesn't surprise me at all that they were more adept at the beginning with this pandemic. That had SARS, you know, in the early part of the 2000s. Um, they knew uh, that it could come. And uh, this is part of planning. But we've learnt our lesson on that. I'm not saying we're ready for everything, but I think most business people are much more aware that, for example, your capital has to be kept a bit intact because you may have a period where your restaurants can't be serviced or where you can't get staff or where your people are sick. And this, of course, needs capital, which is what uh, capital is for. One more before we move on. It was recently announced that you were to become the chairman of Lavande Living. Take me through the retirement sector as you see it in Australia and what you see Lavande doing differently from many of the other players, if at all. I think the first thing is the retirement area is of course very large. Um, it's actually my age group um, that, are, uh, that you can see it in. They are people who are not wishing to just sit, if, assuming they've got good health. They want to be active. Some of them want to continue to work full or part-time. And there's a whole new way of thinking. For years, retirement villagers used to say, if you're over 55, you can come and have a wonderful life. Well, it's, you know, it's quite young, 55, particularly when you're my age. Um, so I think there needs to be a whole reappraisal of what are the services people need, how they can live and enjoy their lives. By the way, how they can continue working if they want to, in part-time or mentoring, which might even be better, in their old age, and not be lonely, be able to see perhaps their partner if they need more services, if they're in an aged home that might be nearby. And there's a whole lot of planning that can go into all of this. I'm very, very comfortable that the EQT people who are behind uh, the Lavande buy, they've had experience in this. Um, they have brought together an extraordinary good team of managers. Um, I can't promise you that there'll be raging success, but I'm quietly confident looking at what they're doing. I thought we'd close out our discussion with a few more general topics and questions, in particular your passion for philanthropy and we could spend another hour going through all of the philanthropic roles that you've had over the years. Is the business, is somebody's business interests and philanthropic interests, they would seem to me like it's always been distinguished as opposed to being seen in parallel, would that be a fair assessment based on all of the roles and positions that you've held? A lot of people 
see the philanthropic side of their lives as separate from their business side. I'm not sure that's the right way to look at things. I think your life is your life. And by the way, whatever you do in philanthropy is a personal thing. It is up to you, not for people like me to judge you or whatever. I've found that the philanthropic part of my life, which is now much bigger as I get older than it was when I was very active in practice because I didn't have as much time, but it linked in beautifully. As an example, I remember in the early 80s being invited to go on the board of St Vincent's Hospital. I remember sitting there thinking, this is wonderful, my dad wanted me to be a doctor, I'm now at St Vincent's Hospital. But I also realised that there were 20 people around that board table and at least 10 of them were very good for my business. So it worked both ways. I gave a lot of my time, loved working there, but at the same time those people saw that I was able to solve a problem or to hold their hands when they had a problem and of course I ended up acting for a lot of them. That's the way life works. And I think it's not, uh, it's not right to say I'll only do philanthropy because of what it gives to me. But it is equally wrong to say I'll only do philanthropy because it's got to come from my heart. Mm. I think your life is a whole and each, one, each part of your life builds on the other. If you were to compare Australia's current corporate landscape with, say, Australia's corporate landscape in the 70s or 80s, obviously it's changed, but... To what extent or degree have you seen that change over the decades that you've been involved in business? I think there have been quite a lot of changes. I think that we are a bit more open, perhaps not as open as we should be, but we're moving to being open to big diversity. I mean, for example, I'm a bit of, a, of an example of that. I mean, I wasn't a, a blue blood born in Australia. I'm a, a, somebody who was born in South Africa, I'm Jewish, um, but as far as I'm concerned, I know that every day I have to prove myself. And the wonderful thing about the Australian business community so far is if you want to do that, they're open for it. I think that the concept of making sure that we have gender diversity has started and certainly at board level it's becoming reasonable. We need now to back that so that we've got people in the C-suite. I mean, we've got a few wonderful female CEOs. We need many. And I think that that's a, really a question for men to get off their backsides and basically help to nurture and mentor uh, the, the females coming behind and basically get a much more equal basis. I love the idea of having people from all denominations and walks of life and I can absolutely say to you having sat through thousands of board meetings that the most dangerous thing for people like me is to have people like me sitting next to them round a board table. The best thing is to have somebody who's different because it keeps me on my toes and at the same time the questioning of each other gets to I think a better and more examined answer. I want to ask you about risk. How important is the evaluation of risk and how have you seen the risk appetite for Australian companies change over the years? I think that risk is an absolutely important issue. Anybody who says I'm going to invest in something risk-free is not investing. 
Everything's got risk. I mean, crossing the road has got risk. The important thing is to understand the risks, to learn from the mistakes, as I said earlier, and to make sure that the risks you take are within your appetite of risk. And understanding risk is not easy, and sometimes comes on you, you know, suddenly you get a pandemic, which you didn't know was a risk, well now you know it exists, you've got to, to build that in. In terms of taking of risk, I think Australians do take risk. I, I hope that they don't take extreme risk, because that's not a good thing, but I would encourage people that you can't just stay in one position. We live in, I think, a fabulous country. And we could just stay and enjoy the fruits, basically, of digging in the ground and so on. That's not good enough. We've got to keep taking the risk to research. We've got to nurture our, our, our kids coming through. And we've got to try and build ourselves to the next stage. This is a risky thing, but it's a good thing. How do you create a successful culture within an organisation? I think a lot's been written about that, and obviously there's, uh, you know, some have decided to say it's the imperative of the board and so on. I think there is no doubt that a board of directors can outline, delineate what are the realms of what is culturally acceptable, and that's their job. For example, when something happens, they must, you know, make it clear what they believe and be strong on that. I think they've got to walk their own talk. They can't do one thing and espouse another. And at the same time, I think they and the CEO have to be very clear on what's the expectation. At the same time, though, that's got to permeate through the company. And management are very important. The board should keep an eye and watch what's going on. But the board can't be in every room in the whole place or indeed at every desk or every uh, machine, uh, depending on what the company is. So what you've got to do is to take what is the cultural basis of the firm and make sure that it permeates throughout. And that's tricky, and you'll never always get it right. But when you get it wrong, the way you act on that, I think, delineates what will happen next. What are the fundamentals, do you think, for successful deal-making? I think that the fundamentals, by the way, of life is basically to appreciate people and to give all people a fair go. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to be, you know, a pushover as a, as a negotiator, but it does mean you've got to give some respect. It does mean you've got to be reasonable. You know, your take should not be excruciating and uh, so that the person goes away hating you. But at the same time, I think that uh, your reasonableness should come through and you, sh you should expect it also coming the other way. Deal-making is bringing two people or six people, doesn't matter how many, together. And I think a respect is a very good way to start. And listening is a good thing too. It's clear you're a very humble person, but I do want to ask, when you reflect on your career, what are your proudest achievements? What do you look back on most fondly? I think, I mean, you'll laugh, but consistent with my sort of life, I, I think that I'm quite happy uh, with surviving. That basically, 
you know, over a 46-year period, there have been ups and downs, but overall, um, they haven't been so terrible so far as to destroy what I really believe is a pride in what I do and a wish to be a success within my own delineation. I would say to you that in terms of milestones of what I've achieved, I don't think uh, that they're, they're that major. I remember Frank Lowy once said that uh, the thing about success is that you climb a ladder and you stand there, you're so proud you've come up the ladder and there's another ladder. And he's absolutely right. And when you get, he says, to the point where you don't see the ladder, that's the day you die. And I subscribe to that. I could have said that myself. Key lessons that you've learned over your career that you could impart? I think I've learned that basically how you sell your ideas is often incredibly important. The number of times, particularly when I was in practice, when I had a solution and I was quite proud I'd come to the solution, but I sort of pushed the solution and timing was wrong and so it wasn't looked at. And then, you know, three years later you see your solution being used and you think, I thought I thought of that. It's very important that you bring people along with you. And I come back to this concept of respect. I mean, I am lucky, I think, that I like people. Others may say I'm unlucky because it stops me being a dragon. And I'm quite happy for people to know that I'm not a dragon. But the fact is, it doesn't mean you can't be strong. But what you do need to do, I think, is you listen, you try and bring people together, but above all, you give respect. Where do you look for inspiration or motivation? You've got so many, you wear so many different hats, you're involved in so many different businesses. You could clearly give it all away and, and enjoy retirement. What keeps you active and motivated to contribute? Firstly, I like to be involved. I, do, I mean, I've already mentioned my brilliant sporting career. Um, I can't go and play golf for the day because it won't be a very happy occasion. <laughs> so I, I like to be involved in what's going on and uh, that's, that drives me. Yeah, I really feel on a high when something's happening and I'm involved in it. It's great. And that could be part of, uh, uh, in my opinion, a team or indeed a couple of people. And that's, that's very nice to do. That drives me. The involvement drives me. I've got to say young people drive me too. As I get older, I realise the talent that is coming behind is amazing. And to the extent that they allow me in their lives, I regard myself as very privileged and I enjoy it. Being chairman and watching young people do the work is just, there's nothing better. Um, so that's what drives me. My final question, when you look ahead, how confident are you of Australia's long-term future? And I suppose the second part of that is, what are the future industries or sectors that you see will dominate in the years to come? With one caveat, I'm extremely confident on Australia's future. And that caveat is that we cannot assume that just because we've got probably the best country in the world, and we've got the wealth, which is wonderful, 
and we've got the sun and we've got the water if we want it and indeed we can find resources, whatever our view on the environment or whatever, we'll find a solution. Um, I think that's wonderful. But the caveat is that you have to keep working. In my opinion, happiness, success doesn't come sitting still. You've got to keep moving. And I would say, you know, the concept of Australia moving on, happily nurturing education, nurturing research, nurturing arts, nurturing the health system, giving dignity to our older people, etc., uh, and to our young people. Those are the things we have to work at. And as we worked at the diversity in our community and our acceptance and social well-being, we got a pretty good shot on being very good. David Gonski, AC, it's been an absolute privilege having the opportunity to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you.